What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 61 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ARRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. In this episode, we're speaking to Professor Eric Mazur. Eric is an incredibly experienced and influential educator and physicist who has worked at Harvard University in both the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and the Graduate School of Education for many years. A professor of physics, one of Eric's recent publications is entitled Intracellular Cargo Delivery Induced by Irradiating Polymer Substrates with Nanosecond Pulsed Lasers. But luckily, That's not the topic of today's podcast. No, today we're talking about the instructional method that Eric has pioneered, which is entitled Peer Instruction, a much more comprehensible title. Eric is a respected educator around the world, and his book on this topic, Peer Instruction, a user's manual, has been incredibly influential and provides a practical introduction into how to take a concept-focused approach to instruction, particularly in the physics classroom, but also in other subjects too. I loved this discussion, and this is because Eric is the kind of educator that I strive to be. That is, he has brought a continual curiosity to his teaching and continually asked over several decades in the classroom, what's working for my students, what isn't, and how can I improve my methods? What has resulted is an ever-refined approach that just keeps on getting better. And that's what you'll be hearing about today. This episode of the EWR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I'm highlighting the book The Teaching Life by Kate Jones and Robin McPherson. This new book embarks upon a noble journey to help teachers to continually improve and to map out a career path that provides opportunities for continual advancement and learning. By combining interviews, case studies, and challenging questions, The Teaching Life aims to help you to continually develop as a teacher and to lead both a successful and a fulfilling career. Other recent titles from John Cat Educational include Adam Box's Teaching Secondary Science, A Complete Guide, Becky Allen, Matthew Evans, and Ben White's The Next Best Thing in School Improvement, and Oliver Caviglioli's Organize Ideas. You can get any of these books from John Cat Educational at johncatbookshop.com, and if you use the code ERRR30 at checkout, you receive 30% off any of these books from John Cat Educational. That code, ERRR30, will also give you 30% off my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realize the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities, the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra Goulburn, including the professional development they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. 
Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 61 of the ACCR podcast with Professor Eric Mazur. Eric Mazur, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you for having me, Oliver. First question we ask, Eric, is if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Eric, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I greet them back because that's how, how I've been educated. And I, I love when people say hi, Eric, to me. So I, I will immediately try to connect and find out if I know the person uh, and what we share in common and, and uh, how I can make that person's day better. Cool. And, and, and how do you, you've just taken on a new job. What's, what's that role that you've taken on? So I'm the Academic Dean for Applied Sciences and Engineering, which is a a newly created job to find a way to better involve faculty in the leadership of the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard, right? So to not just have administrators take all the decisions, but but find a way to, to include the faculty. And in a sense, I'm the liaison between the senior faculty and the junior faculty, and the uh, the people who who keep the school running, so to speak. Got it. No worries. Now, we'll, this is a bit of an escalation of questions here. We've started off with what do you do? The next question is a big one. And I ask this question to kind of, I think that in education, what we do and how we do it depends a lot on what we believe we're trying to achieve, right? And so you can't say what works and what doesn't without talking about for what purpose. So the next question is, what do you see as the purpose of education? Well, I think first and foremost, it's to uh, to um, make this world better and to advance society in the broadest sense possible. I think, you know, this, this dates back to probably the beginning of uh, humanity, right? Um, one generation sort of handing off its skills and knowledge to, to, to the next generation. And education is, in a sense, a, a more formal way of, uh, of doing that and, and permitting every member of society to be the best they can be. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Now, Eric, I wanted to start with talking a little bit about a realization that you, you've talked in a few talks you've given that that you had and you you started it you must be have been at Harvard for almost 40 years now I have isn't it amazing it is amazing I first of all I never thought I was going to be an academic my, both of my parents were academics I wanted to you know I I saw you know you always want to be different from your parents right so I thought you know academics are academics and I, I want to do something useful in my uh, in my life and uh, so I so I lined up a job in in industry at at Philips in in the Netherlands because that's where I grew up and uh, and then my father convinced me to defer the job and take on a one year postdoc at Harvard in the US well here I am it's been a long year yeah, about 40 of them. Um, so after that move, and that would have been around 1982 or something like that, you did start lecturing relatively soon at Harvard in, in physics, if I, if I understand correctly. And you started off quite traditionally, but it didn't actually take you long before you realized that there might be a better way to do things. I just, I'd love for you to talk briefly about that realization that you had and some of your early thoughts around what might need to change for your, for your teaching to be more effective. 
Well, I'm glad you're saying it didn't take you very long because I, you know, looking back, I think what took me so long. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was a postdoc for about a year and a half, and then was offered a faculty position at Harvard, an assistant professorship, and um, as an faculty member, as a professor, you are supposed to teach. So I, uh, uh, and as a, as, a, as a young assistant professor, I didn't really have a choice on what to teach. And they gave me the course that nobody else in the department wanted to teach, namely physics for pre-medical students, students who, you know, didn't learn, didn't take a physics course because they say, hey, cool, we're going to learn physics. No, they already hated physics. It was a requirement to get into, uh, into medical school. And it still is, actually, 40 years later. So looking back at my, my first steps in the classroom, you know, it's kind of remarkable that I just stepped in there without even asking myself, what am I going to do in that classroom? Or how am I going to teach? In a sense, it was maybe dictated by the layout of the room, which was an auditorium built like a theater, and my own experience as a student, right? I, it was not that long before that moment that I stepped into the classroom in 1984 that I had been a student sitting in a similar room listening to my professors. And what had they done? They had lectured to me. So I sort of, without even realizing that that was an assumption I was making, I sort of assumed, well, that's how we learn, that's how we teach. So I started lecturing. And you know, something really interesting happened. As I told you a moment ago, most of my colleagues did not want to teach that course because pre-meds are not very kind to physicists, right? I mean, they dread physics and they dread the experience in physics courses. And therefore, the end of semester ratings of my colleagues would be really, really low. But what happened for me, maybe it was part the age, maybe it was part the, the way I was lecturing and the way I was projecting myself to the students, but they gave me very high ratings. And on top of that, I, I could give them some pretty tough exams and they would mostly do really well on them. So I very quickly got feedback that told me, Eric, you're doing a good job by, by those standards, by those traditional standards. And given that my colleagues were not able to get good ratings and, and to get similar results, I very quickly started to think that I was, you know, one of the best lecturers. I mean, I, it, it was kind of very flattering uh, to, to, uh, to feel that. But, you know, as you kind of alluded to, that, that was really an illusion, a house of cards that that took not that short an amount of time. It took seven years before that sort of collapsed. Cool. And, and what, did you, what did you realize was not working? So I think, as I said, somewhere around my sixth or seventh year teaching, I read an article in the American Journal of Physics that claimed that students, non-majors, so students who are not going on in the discipline, but who are taking a not, who are going to be either engineers or, or doctors, who are taking physics, learn really next to nothing in their introductory physics courses. And the authors of that article had gathered that, or evidence, had gathered evidence for that conclusion by essentially asking students a set of 30 relatively straightforward word 
based question. So no equations, no, no calculations, no drawings, just, you know, daily life type of situations and asking students to predict what would happen under certain circumstances. And then repeat those same questions at the end of the semester. Now, if you ask a physicist, they look at you as these questions say, these are trivial, you know, I mean. And in fact, when I first saw that test, I thought, this is so trivial, my students are gonna ace it. But then when I saw the data that these authors had collected by looking at pretest at the beginning of the semester and post that test at the end of the semester in a, in a broad range of schools, including in some classes where the instructor had won teaching awards. And when I saw that, you know, there was hardly any difference between what was obtained at the end of the semester and the beginning. I thought, you know what? I'm going to show that in my class, things are very, very different. Well, they turned out not to be that different at all. In fact, when I first gave that questionnaire with 30 questions to my students, I mean, it, it took not even five minutes before a student raised her hand. And I went over to her and she looked up at me and she said, um, Professor Mazur, how, how should I answer these questions? According to what you taught me or according to the way I usually think about these situations? I was so flabbergasted by that question that I, I didn't even know how to answer. I mean, as a physicist, of course, should be the same, right? <laughs> I mean, because I'm teaching about daily life and, and things that happen in the universe around us. So I don't remember what I told the student because I, it was the first sort of uh, symptom that there was something really, really wrong deep down there. And by the time I analyzed the data, I could see that, you know, my quote-unquote stellar teaching was simply a, a house of cards. Yeah, right. And so, so the test, you're, the set of 30 questions you're talking about there is, to my understanding, the force concept inventory, which, you know, if you're a physics teacher, you can find that online relatively easily. And it's a set of questions that, because often, you know, you talked about testing at the start, testing at the end and seeing no growth. And this was in contrast, obviously, the growth that they were showing on your standard kind of textbook and exam style questions, right? So what you're pointing out is that you took these med students from not knowing much physics to being able to do very well on their end of year exam with tricky questions, yet when you gave them these more conceptual questions on the force concept inventory that really tested their conceptual understanding, whether they had that change in their bones and had kind of mixed their their naive worldviews with these physics concepts, that we actually didn't see a change in their conceptual understanding over that time. And for me, that's the big su surprise and the, the big change as well. Well, it was, it was just as big a surprise as me. In fact, I, it took a while for me to actually understand these results. At the beginning, I thought, this makes no sense. They can solve problems that are way harder than these simple questions. How is that possible? And so the force concept inventory that you mentioned is actually restricted to problems that are you know, dealing with the concept of force, as the, the name suggests, which you know, is one of the, the earliest concepts you encounter in a course on physics. And I thought, you know, let's, let's move forward. So, so the next semester in the spring, when we're dealing with electromagnetism, I said to myself, you know what, I need to do some more investigation, right? Because what is going on here? Either I have really dumb students, but that's kind of hard to say at a place like mine, or I'm a lousy teacher. I wasn't ready to admit that either. Or there's something wrong with the test. 
And so that was the first route I embarked on. I, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to see if this test is valid. And rather than doing that on the concept of force, I decided to take electric circuits where people have very few intuitive notions. And on written exams, what I did is I, I paired two types of question. One that was word-based and conceptual, and another one which was a standard textbook problem on exactly the same subject, right? But you know, a beginning, a, be, a, a novice would not see the connection between the two. Only, you know, somebody with a, with a solid understanding of physics would, would see the connection between the two. And that was very revealing because what I found was that the students did very well on the standard textbook problem, but they were not able to handle this more conceptual, qualitative problem on exactly the same subject. Whereas, a, you know, somebody who was trained in physics would have had no problem with both types of problem. So... What that revealed was that my students were really solving problems by rote. They were, they were not solving them by understanding what was going on in the problem. No, they were reverse engineering the problem. What do I need to know? What equation can I find that will tell me what the answer is? And so, so I was really training them like a monkey, right? To jump through a hoop, not, not really to understand physics. And then... If you don't continue in physics, then, you know, two weeks after the final exam, you've forgotten everything because it doesn't stick that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that approach is kind of, they often call it plug and chug. You know, you, you write out the quantities you've got, you look at your set of equations, find the equation that's got all the quantities except for one, and then you, you, you know, run it through, run it through the process to find the thing that's missing. Fair enough. So, so you had these students, you gave them these conceptual questions, you realized they couldn't do them. And you, you said just then that you were trying to work out if it was the test is faulty, the students are dumb, which probably wasn't the case because you're at Harvard, and or you're you're not 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 as good as a teacher as you as you thought you were. Um, what conclusion did you come to? That I was not a very good teacher, or at least that my teaching was not very effective. Let's let's put it a little <laughs> bit more kindly. Okay. So what did you do? What did you do? So in the meantime, between that realization and the poor result on the force concept inventory, something had happened in my class that, that sort of opened up uh, a possibility. You see, after I gave the, the force concept inventory to my students, not only was I shocked by my students' poor performance, they were equally baffled. Right? To them, that was pretty, they saw their scores, and it was only you know a few weeks before the final exam that was during a time that I still had a, a final exam, and they were worried. How can I, you know, only have 50% on this, this, uh, this questionnaire, as I called it, because I didn't want to give them the name of the force concept inventory. So because they were worried, and because the exam was only two weeks away, they asked me, you know, could we have a, a session to discuss these questions. And I, so I booked a classroom from 7 p.m. at night to 10 p.m. And we went through every single question. And I remember coming to a question that in my mind was so incredibly simple that I was struggling how to explain it. I, I thought, you know, it's just the way it is. You know, I mean, I, I, I couldn't really 
formulated much better. And after, but, but I, I tried my best. I made a sketch of the drawing, and, 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 and I, it was referring to Newton's third law, colloquially known as action is reaction, and a collision between a heavy truck and a light car. And so I made a drawing, and, and I invoked Newton's third law. And then I said, by Newton's third law, the answer is blah, 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 whatever the answer is. And of course, I'd done a lot of that with my back to the board. So I turned around and I could see from my students' faces that they were confused. So, and I knew that, you know, a lot of them had given the incorrect answer on that question. So I said, is there any question? Deafening silence. I mean, I, I could see, you know how it is, you know, when, when you're very confused by something and you, you have a very basic conceptual misunderstanding, it can be very difficult to articulate that. You lack the words to express your own misunderstanding and, and that's the situation that my students were in. So so I, I knew then and there that I had a problem, right? I mean, one thing is you can say, okay, nobody has a question, I go on, but I, I, I knew that I couldn't do that. So I thought, you know, I tried to sort of imagine you know, maybe there was one or two students who, who asked an inquiry on question that I couldn't connect to because I, uh, as an expert, I was sort of, you know, blinded by the expert blind spot, right? I mean, I, I, it's, once you understand something, it's very hard to put yourself in the frame of mind of somebody who does not understand. Anyway, so I thought, you know, maybe they're confused by, by this thing. And so I, I erased the blackboard and I started all over from scratch and I made a sketch. And, and for, for 10 minutes, I worked out this problem in the greatest detail I possibly could. You know, you have to imagine that after 10 minutes, the whole board was covered with sketches and equations. I, I thought, you know... I sure must have nailed it now, right? Of course, I'd done this all with my back to them, so I turned around only to see that they looked even more confused. And, and I, I asked them again, you know, is there a question? And, and there was no question that made any sense to me. So I didn't know what to do. But I knew one thing from, from the force concept inventory. I knew that about half the class had given the right answer. So I thought, you know, and I didn't clearly articulate this in my head. It was sort of done in the spur of the moment. I thought, you know what, they should discuss it with each other. So I had 250 students in the class. I said, you know, why don't you turn to your neighbor and try, you know, to, to convince your neighbor of your answer? And something happened I'd never seen in an auditorium, right? It had always been a, a passive affair with me lecturing and them just sitting there as sponges, you know, taking notes. And usually the, the, the sponge was not the, the part that was taking up the information. It was the notebook that was taking up the information. And what happened was that, you know, the classroom erupted in complete chaos. I mean, they all started to, to talk to each other. They were eager to talk to each other. In fact, they were so engrossed in the discussion that I felt totally isolated in front of the classroom. It was as if, you know, they were not even paying attention to me anymore. It was as if I wasn't there. In fact, I think I could have walked out of the classroom and they would have not have noticed it. And, but what was really surprising was that, you know, as I approached the front few rows, that within two or three minutes, they were done with their discussion and they'd figured it out. And at first I thought, how in the world is that possible? I, the expert have tried in two different ways to explain it to them over more than 10 minutes, unsuccessfully, and they just talk to each other for a few minutes and, and they get it. And later I realized 
not immediately, but later I realized that what happened is that imagine that you have two students sitting next to each other, right? John and Mary, and Mary, Mary has the right answer, and she understands the problem, whereas John does not understand the problem, he has the wrong answer. Then on average, Mary will be more likely to convince John than the other way around, simply the force of logic. But that's not the important point. The important point is that Mary is more likely to convince John than Professor Mazur in front of the class. Why? Because she has only recently learned it. You know, she can still connect to the difficulties that John has. Whereas Professor Mazur has learned it such a long time ago, to him it's so clear in his mind that he cannot even understand why, why uh, John is not getting it. Right? It's sort of the, the, the curse of knowledge, as, as my colleague uh, Steven Pinker uh, calls it, right? Or, or, or the expert blind spot, as Susan uh, Ambrose uh, calls it in her book, uh, How Learning Works. It's, it's, you, know, you, you tend to forget your own conceptual difficulties as a learner once you've clarified things in your, in your, own, uh, in your own mind. And so, so as I was realizing, oh, it's not the test. It's not the students. It's Eric Mazur's teaching. I went back to that moment and I thought, you know what? That's what I should be doing in my classroom. I should be teaching by questioning and having students discuss things rather than me just telling them things. Yeah, that's powerful. And, and it's powerful that you were open to kind of that, that insight or you sufficiently alert to the, in, the, the environment of the classroom to actually have that kind of that momentary realization, or maybe I should get them to talk to each other. And then you, you took that and you, you, you essentially wrote a book about how to make the most of that moment of students interacting. That book and the instructional kind of process that it, it represents is called peer instruction. So could you give us a bit of an overview of, of, of the process of peer instruction, Eric? Yes. So essentially, you know, I, I realized when I, when I saw this contrast between my students' standard exam problem performance and the conceptual questions, that what I was doing in the classroom by lecturing was essentially transferring information. Right? I, I took a textbook, I wrote lecture notes from it, in the classroom, I would either project those lecture notes or I would write them on the board. The students would write them in a notebook. So essentially, I was transferring them from my lecture notes to their notebooks. But education is not just information, especially not in the sciences, but I think in any discipline, really. You need to internalize the information or actually extract from the information the mental models that permit you to apply your skills in a new context. And I think many educators, including myself, tend to think, oh, that just happens by listening to, to lecturers. Well, maybe it worked for a few of us and we then subsequently became professors. But for most people, that is not, especially if they're not interested in the discipline, is not going to happen. So I started to see education as a two-step process. One, information transfer. I mean, no information transfer, no education, right? Let's face it, it's the first basic step. But then the second step is making sense of that, that, that information, assimilating that information, having the aha moment like, oh, now I get it. And I started to think, where did those aha moments occur for me? Did they occur while I was sitting 
in a lecture hall listening to my professors? I don't think so. I was basically mostly busy furiously transcribing as much information as I could. We didn't have a, a, uh, <clears throat> a habit of, um, of buying books in the Netherlands. You would just you know, take notes from whatever the instructor said. And then, and then at night, I would transcribe my own notes more neatly. And I would think, you know, why does this make sense? And I would have the aha moments on my own because I was intrinsically motivated to learn the subject. But most of our students have vastly different interests from the ones that, that I have. So I thought, you know, what I really need to do is bring those aha moments into the classroom. I'd been focusing, if you think of those two steps, information transfer and sense making, I'd been focusing on the easy part, information transfer, leaving the hard part, sense making, to my students on their own. Wouldn't it be much, make much more sense to make the students responsible for the information transfer so that I can be there and help them with the sense-making. And what better way to help students with sense-making by asking them questions that they resolve together. So peer instruction works as follows. Information transfer is thrown out of the classroom, no more lecturing. They either watch a recorded lecture or they read a book or there, there are many approaches and we can talk about that later if you want. In the class, I teach by questioning. So I build upon the information transfer by asking them questions. I try to aim the questions so that about 50% of them get it right. I don't want too many to get it right because then the next step doesn't work. I, want too I don't want too few to get it right because then the next step doesn't work either. So after they think about the question, I have them commit to an answer. They can either do that by writing it on a piece of paper or we can use you know, clickers or cell phones or whatever, it doesn't really matter. And if I'm in that 50% range, so let's say between 30% and 70% who are giving the desired answer, I'm saying here desired rather than correct because in many cases there might not be one correct answer, right? And definitely in the humanities where this approach works too, it, there might be a whole gray area. But that's just as well because the goal is to bring the thought process in the classroom. So if I'm in that range, 30 to 70%, I say, you know, find a neighbor around you as a different answer and try to convince that neighbor that you are right and he or she is wrong. Complete chaos. Aha moments all the way around. You can actually see the students go, oh, because, you know, another student explains it to them. It's just phenomenal, you know. I, <clears throat> I still get excited, even though this was 30 years ago that I first implemented that. I still am so excited when I, when I see a student go, Oh, you know, it's like you see these, this light bulb go off in, in front of you. And, and then after, you know, I have given them some opportunity to discuss and think, I, uh, I ask them to vote again, to again record an answer on the same question. And typically, if, it's somewhere, if, it's, if you start out with somewhere between 30 and 70% desired or correct answer, it's not unusual to jump to 90% in the, in the second round. And in the process, you've resolved a lot of misconceptions that students had. Well, you haven't as an instructor. They have amongst themselves. And, you know, that's really how, how it should be. Because if you just tell them the answer, it won't stick. But if you have that aha moment, it sticks. And then I wrap up with a short discussion, a short uh, explanation, which can either come from me, but even better if it comes from 
the students themselves. I think, you know, I reveal what what answer I was hoping to see and how many got it right. And I asked for a volunteer to provide the, the, the reasoning behind. And then that cycle essentially repeats over and over until class time is up. So it's filled with aha moments. It's filled with students overcoming conceptual difficulties. Do we, do we fix everything? No, of course not. And, and a lot hinges on finding the right questions to ask the students. And, um, but yeah, I could never, never, never go back to straight lecturing to teach physics or any other discipline for that matter. Mm. Thanks, Eric. So to recap that for, for listeners, the peer instruction process is the information transfer comes prior to the lecture. And we'll go into that in a bit more detail. Prior to class. Okay. Right. No, because there is no lecture. Okay, true. Very, very <laughs> the information transfer is thrown out of the class, so there's another process that replaces the lecture. Yeah, and we'll come back to that. So information transfer prior to class. Then in class, you do, give a question, give students independent thinking time, and then poll them and get their individual answer. Um, then if it's 30 to 70%, they discuss, ideally with someone who has a different answer to them. Then you actually re-poll and then you will go on to explain. You, you might get a student to explain, uh, or you might kind of wrap it up yourself. And I guess depending upon, and, and that you actually, in your book, you talk about repeating that process until you do get to around 90% accurate or correct on a specific, con- specific concept. So that's great. Now, something, something you talked about then was the importance of having the right question, because you can't just use any old question for, for a peer instruction approach. So what are some of the the characteristics of a question that are required for it to be good and appropriate for peer instruction. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I've learned a lot over the years about that. So, so first of all, it should never be a factual question, right? Like, what is the color of the sky? Right? I mean, there's, there, there's no, there's a right answer, it's blue. Or, you know, maybe at sunset it has a different color. But let's say during a sunny day at midday, it's, it's a beautiful blue. And what it, let's say that somebody else says orange and, and I say blue and we talk to each other, you know, what are we going to argue about, right? On the other hand, why is the sky blue, uh, you know, in, in, in the middle of the day on a sunny day? That's a question that you can actually argue about because what is the underlying physics principle? So, so factual questions are never good. In what year did World War II end in Western Europe? Another, you know, factual question that I could just Google. So it has to, the question has to have an underlying model. You know, it could be anything from iconography and representations in art history to a physics model in a, in a, in a physics course. So that's, that's the first requirement. The second one is, and this is something that took me a long while to discover, right? In the beginning, I thought, I have to come up with questions. And, and I was desperately looking for good questions to ask in class. I just couldn't come up with that many good questions. So it was a struggle always. And I also found that often the type of questions that came up in my crazy mind were not the type of questions that resonated with my students. They had very different questions. And that made me realize that the best questions are the questions that the students have. Initially, I, when, when I first made that realization, I thought, you know what, I'm going to look at old exams and look at the type of mistakes that the students make 
and see if I can develop questions around the pitfalls and the traps that my students fell in when solving exam problems. But then much more recently, I've realized that the best questions are the questions that the students have during or after the information transfer. So in other words, say they watch a recorded lecture, lots of students will have questions. Why is it that blah, 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 blah. They might not articulate it. Those would be the perfect questions to ask in class and get, get the students engaged in, in, a, in a conversation. Interesting. So well, first of all, I, I wanted to inquire, before you talked about that, you said the question, why is the sky blue, could be potentially a reasonable question to use. But I was wondering about that because that's really, that is really just a factual question, but it's just a more complicated factual question, right? It's to do with Rayleigh scattering and things like that. So it's simply just the student, one student knows and one student doesn't. Is that an appropriate one or? Well, I mean, you, you, you could just refer to Rayleigh's question, uh, Rayleigh scattering, but you could also wonder why, why is Rayleigh scattering? Why does that happen, right? What is the physics behind uh, Rayleigh scattering? And that would be an even better question to ask. So yes, I mean, you have to be careful that the question cannot be reduced to hiding behind a simple equation, for example, or a simple procedure or a memorized fact. Okay. All right. So we've talked a little bit about what makes a good conceptual question for this peer instruction. And interestingly, I was, I was actually a bit surprised by your answer there in terms of it, the best answers coming out of student contributions, because that's quite different from the original, the fantastic concept tests, which are in your book, Peer Instruction. And for any physics teachers out there, I would highly recommend you get a copy of Eric's book, Peer Instruction, because it just has, for, for pretty much every physics topic you teach in year 11 and 12 physics or first year physics, it has these really in-depth questions that you might, as a physics teacher, you might even find a few of them a little bit, little bit tricky yourself because they really do test that conceptual understanding. So that's kind of where you started designing these really well thought out conceptual questions that test that conceptual understanding. And now you've moved a little bit more to, it sounds like, student generated questions as those conceptual questions for peer instruction. So the, this new approach using student using student questions and more generally the flipped classroom approach that you're advocating for, which is the information transfer before class and then in class, the, the kind of group work and the discussions, they both hinge on one key thing, which is that students actually do the work before class so that they can come prepared, right? And I'm sure there's lots of listeners out there who have tried a flipped classroom approach in some respect, and I know this is true of myself, and have found that actually getting students to to do the work before class is really, really hard. So I would imagine that if you're doing this across multiple courses at Harvard, Eric, and I know it's been used in lots of other less elite environments, even some, you know, some just standard kind of community colleges and things like that across the States, you must have worked out some way to get students to do the work before class. So what is that? Yeah, you know, I tried everything. First, I thought, I'm just going to tell my students to read the chapter. This was, you know, a long time ago, 30 years ago. So it was before internet. Uh, so I couldn't tell them to look for something online. So I, I told them, you know, read, read chapter 22 before coming to class. And, uh, and the only incentive for them was that I wasn't going to present chapter 22. I was going to start asking questions about chapter 22. And, you know, the more, the more serious students would engage in that, uh, but there was a large fraction of students who would simply 
totally ignore that and, and quote-unquote wing it when they were in, in the classroom. And in a sense, you know, poison the atmosphere because A, these students are not well prepared to help other students. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was just not great. So then I switched to something else. I thought, you know what, I'm going to give them a little incentive. I'm going to have them write hand in at the beginning of class a summary, two paragraphs, only text, no equations, no, no drawings, summarizing the main points from the, 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 the reasoning. So I would have a box in front of the class and they would put in their, their summary, their reading summary uh, before class. So if they, if they, it was great, you know, they, they would all try to come on time because they would know. I would ask one person from teaching staff to pick up the box five minutes after I started with my class, and if they missed that, that box, they couldn't hand in their summary and they wouldn't get the points. Little did they know that most of the times we just threw the summaries in the trash bin because what do you do with all that information, right? Nobody, we, we, can't, we can't read it for 250 students. Um, so, so, so while that worked a little bit better, it was very unsatisfactory. And then I came across a method this was in the, in the late 90s, called Just-In-Time Teaching. I think the domain is still up, J-I-T-T dot O-R-G. And that combined, in essence, a carrot and a stick, which are both sort of extrinsic motivators, but they're better than just a stick, where the stick is, if you don't hand this in, you get a penalty. So the way Just-In-Time Teaching worked was that you give the students a reading assignment, and then you ask two questions that are content-based questions that are hard to answer if you've not done a serious attempt at doing the reading. And you could do the reading at the same time as answering them, but, but the questions sort of force you to put effort into the reading. Um, there were as part of the credit. And then you add a third question every time. It says, what is the one point that you found most difficult in the reading. And if you did not find anything difficult, then tell us what you found most interesting so that they cannot get away by simply telling everything was clear. And that's the carrot in the sense that as an instructor, you can go over the answers from the students. And when you have 250, you don't need to read all 250. After about you know 30 or 40, you have a pretty good sense at what the questions are that a student have. And that's when I started thinking, boy, those are the questions I need to use in the classroom because those are the questions that they want to know the answer to. Some of them undoubtedly know the answer and they're going to be much more intrinsically motivated to wanting to know the answers. You know, in fact, many students would come to me after class and say, that question that you asked today, that was exactly what I was wondering about. And I would look at the student and say, it was your question. But then, you know, I sort of... Ten, roughly 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less, I, I had an epiphany. I realized that with peer instruction, one of the things I had been doing was making the classroom a more social experience, right? Students were constantly talking to each other, interacting with each other. Everything that was out of class, including, you know, reading a textbook or watching a recorded lecture, handing in a reading summary, or answering just-in-time teaching question were sort of one-way communications between the students and the instructor. And it was an isolated individual experience. 
Whereas learning deep down really is a social experience. And I'd sort of grasped that completely intuitively for the classroom, for the in-class experience, but not for the out-of-class experience. And I thought, what a waste, right? Having all these students generate these questions, they all come to me. I can only see a small subset of them because it becomes too much for me. Why not find a way of having them already before class starting to answer each other's questions so we can address a lot of simple things before we get together in class? So that gave rise to the development or the incorporation of, of social document annotation platforms. So I started, you know, by, by sort of kludging together a platform for my, my class. And that then became a PhD project for one of my graduate students in education. And when we found that it actually worked remarkably well to have the students collectively annotate a document, and now it can also be done with a video. So you watch a video and then at some point you think, hmm, I don't get what she or he said there. And you can pause the video and add your question. And another student who watches the video as he or she watches the video, sees the question fly by and can stop the video and answer it. Or if it's a text, you know, one student can highlight a piece of the text and make a comment or ask a question, and other students can jump in and add to the discussion about that particular, particular passage. And that then gave rise to the development of uh, Perusal, which has a whole, you know, machine learning back end to it to help the instructor analyze all the information of it and distill from, from, from that um, you know, interaction between the students sort of the highlights of the interactions and, and the, most, the most burning unanswered questions so that by the time I get to class, I know what the most burning unanswered questions are that the students have and I can zoom in on that in class. That's great. So, so to kind of summarize that and also a bit of the external reading I've done, Perusal, it's basically a platform where a teacher can go in or a lecturer, they assign readings on a schedule and then students go in as they do the reading, they're annotating that, as you mentioned, that shared document. They can see each other's work. Asynchronously. In contrast to class, you can do this at different times. You don't have to be there at the same time. Yeah, or synchronously as well, because they see a little bubble of each other's yeah. faces as well, which is super cool. It's like learning at the same time as Eric. That's nice. And then there's other cool things they can do, like they can upvote questions. They can first directly respond to other people's questions. They can also upvote questions and be like, oh, yeah, I don't get this as well. And upvote explanations. They, that's the other, they can upvote explanations. So, yeah, this is, so it's just like some sort of Reddit or something, but specific for that reading there's also notifications like email notifications so if they've marked a question like if they've upvoted something and said oh yeah i don't get this either if someone responds to that they'll get an email that says that brings them back into the platform says oh someone responded to your question which is super amazing and then the great thing there also which you alluded to at the end there is the idea of the confusion report for teachers Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Eric Mazur stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back and remember to some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? 
Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary every month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include a summary of the peer instruction process, characteristics of questions that are appropriate for peer instruction, Eric's advice on how to get students to do their preparation before a class involving peer instruction, and much more. Also, this month you still have time to get in for the Patreon offer for my forthcoming book, summarizing key takeaways from the first five years of the ERRR podcast. In this book, I share insights on explicit instruction, behavior management, motivating students, regulation and relationships, curriculum, leadership, and more. If you're a long-time listener of the ERRR podcast and you'd like a memento of these first five years, or if you're a new listener looking for a quick way to orient yourself to the best of what the last 60 episodes has to offer, looking for a quick way to orient yourself to the best of what the last 60 episodes has to offer, then this forthcoming ERRR book is a great way to do this. Patrons who support the ERRR podcast with the average donation of $5 per month will receive a free copy of my forthcoming book, with the only payment required being for postage. And I'm actually personally buying these copies off the publisher, John Cat as a gift to all $5 patrons to say thank you for your support so far. In addition, all ERRR patrons donating less than $5 per month will each receive a unique discount code for 50% off the cover price too. So if you've been thinking about supporting the ERRR podcast through Patreon for a while, and you just haven't taken the plunge quite yet, now is a great time to take that step. There will be a cutoff date for this deal, so it's best to get in quick. So to sign up and get 50 or 100% discount on the forthcoming ERRR 5 years book, go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Eric Mazur. So how is the confusion report generated and what, what can teachers expect to f- see if they generated a confusion report? Yeah, it, it works best in large classes, and that's where it's most needed because you don't have, as a teacher, the ability to read all of the annotations. In my class, which has 120 students, on a single chapter reading, I typically get over a thousand annotations. There's just no way I could possibly read all of that. It's just absolutely no way. So so the confusion report is essentially a clustering algorithm, and it essentially analyzes students' questions, looks at where they're located in the text, and sort of tries to cluster the question in three or four main topics of confusion by looking at, at the words. And it will report back on four topics, and it use keywords to identify those topics that the students have the you know, most questions about. And then it'll show a few exemplar questions for each of these topics. So you can see what is it that the student is actually asking about topic one, topic two, topic three, and sometimes topic four. And if three is not enough, you can click on a little button and see what other questions uh, the students have. It's usually very, very insightful to have that at your fingertips as an instructor. I have to tell you, you know, quite often I've had aha moments there thinking, oh, that's what they're thinking or, or that's what they're wondering about. And, uh, you know, th- that's really so essential, right? Because in a sense, when, when you interact with students in a classroom, you can't look into their brains, right? I mean, maybe, maybe you can interact with one student and get an insight into the thought process 
of that student. But perusal essentially allows you sort of a, a window in, in the collective brains of, your, of the students in your class. And Oliver, you mentioned text-based annotation, but since as soon as the pandemic uh, came out, I convinced my colleagues at Perusal to implement it also for video so that instructors can upload video and then students can annotate video. And I resisted that, you know. I mean, some of my colleagues wanted to implement that right away from the start. And I said, look, you know, a video is just like a lecture. People will be passive and they're simply recipients of information. They're, they're much less actively engaged with the material than when they look at text. But I totally forgotten about one thing, that this annotation layer adds an activity on top of the video. So it turns out that when you add this annotation layer on top of a video, students end up spending way longer interacting with the video than the duration of the video. If you just give them the video and ask them to watch the video, they put the playback speed at 1.5 or, or even 2.0, and they fly through the video as fast as they can. But the interaction slows them down, permitting the brain to pause and think, right, rather than just to be subject to this constant flow of information from the screen into the brain or into the ears. I don't know if it makes it into the brain. Um, you mentioned it works better with larger classes. For most kind of K to 12 teachers, their, their class will be anything from 20 to 30, sometimes in the States, it's 40 students or so. Would it work for, for that size? What's the kind of minimum size? Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I, I think if you have a really small class, like eight students, you, you would have to probably make your readings relatively small so that you get enough interaction, right? I mean, you, wanna, you want a high enough density of annotations for students to be able to latch on to each other's annotation rather than each student putting individual annotation and not interacting with another student's annotation. So so you want to make it dense enough, so to speak, that that, that you force interaction between uh, between the students. And I would say if you get to eight students, it's starting to get probably sparse. Maybe not if you give a one-pager, but you know, most readings tend to be longer than that. Uh, if you have 20, 30, or 40 students, oh, that's that's plenty, you know, then, then that'll work well. And in fact, we have quite a few uh, middle and high school classrooms that are using perusal, both with video and with, uh, with text. Okay, that's great. And um, so something else worth mentioning is that in my explorations, I found that you can also divide students into kind of subgroups. So if you do have a large cohort of 100, it might seem a bit intimidating to comment if 100 people can see it or, or a bit impersonal if you can't remember who's who. So you can actually choose the group size, can't you? And then it automatically, like on Zoom, it will send people into, into groups. Yes. So, so, so it's not just that it's intimidating to make comments for 100 people. It becomes overwhelming. Right, because now imagine imagine that you have a piece of text or uh, a video, and hundred people start annotating and commenting it. Within 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 you know a few hours, there are so many comments that you know there are more comments than there is text or video. And as a student, it becomes like you know the signal <laughs> is lost in the noise, so to speak. So so one of the research project we did. Um, was my PhD student, Kelly Miller, who, whose PhD thesis it was through the research leading to this platform, was to vary the group size and look at what group size gave the optimum quality of engagement 
is measured by thread lengths, right? How many interactions were there? And, and also uh, by measuring the quality of the annotation. She used the machine learning algorithm to, to analyze that. And we found that sort of the, the rule of thumb is that your group size should be roughly the same as the page count in the document, right? So if you have a 20-page document, uh, then uh, the group size should be around 20. If you have a 10-page document, then you can work with, with 10 people. I find, personally, I like, I like about twice as many people in the room, so to speak. So I tend to make my section sizes twice as, uh, twice as large as the default recommendation. Or text size text document size half as big, maybe. So you've got yeah, twice exactly. as Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So if I have a 20-page document, I put 40 people in each section. Got it. And what, do you know how that would translate to video and video length? That, that might be a testing question. It's very good. We, we, you know, I use, personally, not that much video. I have a video at the beginning of the class. I don't have that many other videos that I make available for the students. So... I have no no good answer to that, and we have never, or we have not yet, I should say, rather than never, researched that. It's definitely an interesting project to uh, to look at. Right now, I have no idea. Uh, I do know we, we've run a number of conferences on perusal where we put the talks during the pandemic. You know, there there was a big need for people to meet virtually. There still is. We're still there. And the problem, especially with international audiences, is that how do you bridge the, the time zone gap, right? Things that are convenient for people in the U.S. might not be convenient for people in Australia. And also, it is much harder to force people together into a fixed small window of time when there are no social interactions, right? I mean, if we travel to a conference... We travel to another place, we go and have lunch together, we socialize over coffee in the hallway, we go to talks together, we talk outside of the talk or in the talk. You know, you do something like that virtually and it, it loses a lot of its appeal. So if you can find a way to bring back that social aspect, and that's actually exactly what Prozal does. So we've organized a couple of conferences and to get back to your question about uh, video and video length size, we had one conference that was attended by, I think, 2,000 people. It was the Perusal Exchange, in case you're interested. Lots of great talks there about how uh, different uh, teachers incorporated Perusal into their class. I learned so much myself. It's amazing. I, I thought, you know, as a person who had thought about this platform and one of the founders, I thought, I know this in and out. I know how to best use it in my class. I'm implementing several of the things that I heard at the Prusal Exchange in my own class uh, this, uh, this year. But one of the things I found was that in a number of videos, there were so many annotations that it became overwhelming. And that was probably because we had not really thought through how many you know, students were optimum for, how many students, <laughs> participants, pardon me, because this was a conference, not a class, w was the optimum number for uh, a video. I should probably go back and look at it. I, I do know that I found some of the interactions to be overwhelming. Now, one of the other things, you know, so we've talked about the motivation for students of being social. So that in itself, just being able to interact, have your questions answered, and then know that your input is going to be acted upon in the lecture is 
going to get a lot lot of students to engage when they wouldn't have otherwise. But we, we also know that often it helps to actually assign some grades for uh, student participation as well, right? So how does perusal, um, if at all, account for that and, and kind of grade students or allocate credit based upon their participation? Right. So in the beginning, what we did was we used a machine learning algorithm to look at annotations that reflect thoughtful thinking. And you may think, how can a computer algorithm do that? And, and I think it's important to understand something about how the mind works and how a machine learning algorithm works. So the human mind is actually quite accurate at evaluating individual annotations or individual interactions between people, right? I mean, I can read an annotation and, and I can, with, with, a, with a reasonable reliability, say, oh, this is actually very thoughtful, or oh, this is not that thoughtful, in such a way that somebody else, you, Oliver, for example, uh, will say, yeah, I agree with you, Eric. And, and it turns out that, that for something as subjective as thoughtfulness, two individual raters will agree by about, you know, 75%. Now, if I tell you, Oliver, you know, here are a thousand annotations, go rate them, you're not going to be very happy. And nor will I personally, right? And we may be very accurate on the number, but after about 25 of them, we say, well, you go figure it out. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> but we throw in the towel very quickly. The computer is not quite as accurate on individual annotations as the human mind, because, you know, we don't, it's, it's artificial intelligence, not real intelligence. And, and I don't think we've been able to, to, to develop the algorithms to be as good as a, as a human raider. But as the number increases, the computer very quickly outperforms the human because, you know, little inaccuracies on individual annotations very quickly average out. And so by the time you get to, you know, a few hundred annotations, the computer will track the trainer better than a separate individual will track the trainer. So in other words, if you and I each reluctantly score 500 different annotations, we'll agree about 75%. And if we then take one of our, our two sets of graded annotations and feed it to the machine learning algorithm, and then we convince one of us, the one who was given the, the training set to the algorithm, to grade another fresh 500 annotations. And then we ask the computer to spit out its assessment, which it does in a split second, and then compare the accuracy of the computer's evaluation with the human evaluation. You get to actually 80%, which is better than the inter-rater reliability. So yeah, it may not be that accurate on a single single annotation, but it very quickly gives a darn accurate evaluation of the overall picture uh, you get even for, for a single student. So initially we had just that, but then we discovered something interesting. We discovered that as we collected more data from in-class use, we, we discovered that there were certain things that we were tracking that actually were much stronger, were actually very strongly correlated with students' performance in the class. And in hindsight, it is completely obvious. I'm gonna tell that, I'm gonna tell you a few of them. So for example, if let's say you, Oliver, 
spend one hour reading a certain chapter, but you chunk it up into six, 10 minute readings spaced out by some time. One day you do 10 minutes, the next day you come back, you do another 10 minutes. Later in that day, you do another 10 minutes and so on. And I also spend an hour, but I do it all in one reading. Then you are going to do better in the course than I am. And that makes sense, right? Because you have more time to process the information. You also, and this is very important, have more time to interact with other students and learn from them. If I only come there once, then I don't benefit from all of the interaction. We find that students who start the assignment earlier, correcting for all other factors, do better than those who wait till the last minute and do it just before the deadline. We find that students whose annotations get upvoted do better than those whose annotations do not get upvoted. So then we decided, you know, let's just reverse engineer that. Rather than waiting for this to occur naturally and by rewarding students for thoughtful annotations, which could possibly be gamed, let's reward the behavior that we know, or let's not just reward it, but stimulate, if you want, the behavior that leads to better classroom performance. So now if, let's say, three days before a class, you haven't started the reading, Perusal will actually send you an email saying, you know, most of your classmates have already started reading and research shows that starting earlier leads to better results, right? Likewise, if you've been on the platform for, you know, 20, 25 minutes, it will say, you know, research shows that, you know, breaking this up into little bits is better. So a little bit like the way, um, you know, diet software or like like my fitness pal or or exercise software sort of tries to encourage you to 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 display the behavior that's conducive to your goals we've sort of built that into perusal and on top of this encouraging this this behavior that leads to bigger learning gains we also reward the student for for displaying that behavior yeah that's great and so teachers can basically if they want to allocate some course mark to to engagement in pre-reading or or out of class work they can take a take a grade directly out of perusal that's pretty pretty reliable and, and pretty valid and and um is going to be helpful which is which is fantastic yes yes and and you know if you don't want to rely on the extrinsic motivation you purely want to rely on the encouragement and the connection to the classroom i mean let's not forget that that's a that's a big stim- stimulus for students too right that they see that they're not jumping, simply jumping through a hoop and doing something that, you know, just to please the teacher. No, they're actually doing something to get more out of class. And, you know, in some environments, that's not in mine because I don't teach physics majors, I teach pre-meds. So I, I have to partially rely on the extrinsic reward. But I know quite a few colleagues who turn off the grading completely and simply rely on the encouragement and the connection to the classroom activities. That's great. So a picture starting to form. First, we talked about the idea of moving transmission information before class and that's perusal now. So we, we understand that, that that makes sense. That's one part of the puzzle. And uh, then in class, we want to stimulate that sense making. And that's with peer instruction. So, you know, a question, poll, discussion, question, poll again, explanation and repeat as, as necessary. But there may be some listeners listening, especially those in maths and, maths and science areas thinking, okay, well, this is all well and good, but where does the actual practice of 
standard questions come in, you know, actual, the, the problem solving, the, the kind of questions they're going to actually get on exams. Cause if students don't practice them, they might have conceptual understanding, be able to talk about it. They may have great social interactions, uh, but they're not going to be able to actually do that kind of plug and chug when that's necessary or the more complicated problem solving. And so I, I really enjoyed reading one of your papers. It was with Anarita Moda, uh, where you talked about the use of P sets or problem sets. So to me, the, I was really excited when I found this because I thought, oh, this this is kind of the last piece of the Eric Mazur instructional puzzle in many ways. I, I know you do a lot of problem-based um, and project-based stuff as well, which unfortunately we're not going to have time to, to go into today. I'd love to have you for another three hours to talk about that. But uh, let's let's stick with P-sets for now. So what is a P-set? Uh, how is it different from standard um, problem instruction? And, and tell us a little bit about it. So typically what we do is that once a week we give the students, I, I, I've gone away from problem set and I've called them assignments now. Well, it's just, uh, you know, uh, a terminology change, nothing uh, inherently different. But essentially once a week they get a, uh, an assignment that has three problems. Two, the first two are, I would say, not quite textbook problems. I, I think they're harder because they're more, they have a more rich context. And some of them don't even have a question. They have to figure out what it is that they need to calculate. I mean, this is the problem with a lot of, of, uh, of problems we give our students in math and science, is that, that the last sentence actually identifies the target variable right? I mean, some kind of a story and then blah, 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 and so on. And then the last sentence is, you know, what was the velocity of the car just before it hits the tree? So if you put that in a, in a problem, then the student immediately goes, oh, I got to calculate a velocity. And, you know, what are the formulas I have memorized to calculate a velocity? So it becomes, you know, rather than thinking about the actual problem is, you know, what formula can I apply to solve the problem? And then you go back to, to road problem solving. Wouldn't it be much better to, to have a sort of a more rich context and then show the student that some problem is going to happen if you don't do something? I mean, let's say you're in a balloon, the balloon loses its, uh, its burner, it's run out of gas, and the balloon starts going down and you have a lot of sandbags in the balloon which you can start throwing overboard but if you put too many overboard then the balloon will actually go up and it may crash even harder than it already does so you know but it doesn't say that it says you have a lot of sandbags and you're wondering what to do but luckily you took uh, AP50 that's my class and uh, so you quickly carry out some calculations uh, <laughs> to, to know what, what you should do so no 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 that the sandbags are not right there at the end near the question they're described in the beginning so you you need to sort of think what am i going to do and 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 it doesn't even tell you what you what you should calculate you need to figure it out what you need to calculate so so i have two problems like that in which i train them to basically break down the problems into a getting started step a devise a plan step execute the plan and then evaluate the answer and the students are told look for the at-home part, before you come to class, you know, we want you to have to do your best effort on those four steps. It's not necessary that you will not get evaluated on getting the right answer, but you need to have each of those four steps worked out and detail what your thought processes are. And then in class, so they bring their, their work um, 
now we do it all automated scan and so on. But before we did that, we had them bring it to class. It had to be written in blue or black ink. And then in class, they sit in small groups of four and they need to compare their notes. Oliver, what did you do here for problem one with these, this balloon? I mean, what, 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 did you, uh, what did you work out? How did you do it? So they go to a whiteboard and, and they essentially teach themselves what each of them did. And then once they agree on the problem, they call in somebody from the teaching team, often me, and I join their table and they present their solution to me. And what they need to do during class, during the class, they're not allowed to use a blue or a black pen. Each table has red pens. They need to mark up their own work. They should not improve what they've written because they're going to get the solutions anyway. They need to realize where they made mistakes, what they thought was really good that they did, and what they need to, to review. So it's like a reflection on their own work. The last problem is an estimation problem. Right? I mean, uh, how many breaths do you need to take to inhale at least one nitrogen molecule that Ramses the Great, you know, exhaled on his uh, deathbed, the last, his last breath? Turns out one. It's pretty amazing. Each time we inhale, we inhale one nitrogen molecule that Ramses the Great exhaled. But, you know, in the beginning, students are very uncomfortable with that, right? They're ill-defined problems. I mean, they have to make many assumptions. But, but the fact that we don't evaluate them on the correctness of their answer, but on the effort they put in, guarantees that they'll do work and that that, that work will lead to development of the correct problem-solving skills. And then in class, they learn from each other under the guidance of the, the teaching staff. And then after class, they go back and they reflect on their work. They look at their markup and they write a reflection of what they think they understand, what they think they don't understand, and they rate themselves. They give themselves a, a grade. So if you don't get anything right before you come to class, but you put in effort, and during class, you mark up your, your work, and then after class, you correctly evaluate yourself, I didn't understand this, I didn't understand that, you get 100% credit. And I found that that stimulates a level of deep learning that I'd never seen before in my students. It takes off the pressure from getting the right answer and puts a thinking, the thinking process back into the classroom. I will never look back. I mean, I'm, I'm just totally hooked on, on this approach to developing problem-solving skills and, and, in a sense, meaningful problem-solving skills, the type of problem skills that we'll need later in life. That's awesome. I, I could ask lots more questions because you do have a really, in, the paper's excellent in how practical it is because you've got two appendices. One is gives explicitly the reflection questions you ask for student, students to do. And then you also give the grading and there's kind of a team, the team mark links to the, the individual student mark. But we don't have time to talk about that, unfortunately. I'll, but I'll do a summary of that for, for support of the podcast to make that easy for them to, to access. Just the final final question before we go into some some closing questions about book recommendations and things like that. We've talked about three things today, peer instruction, perusal, and P-sets. What evidence, I mean, all, all of this makes sense. It all makes sense. Um, it's born out of your experience. It's born out of what you've done in your own classroom. But what evidence in addition to that do we have that these processes work and lead to greater understanding and better student achievement? Yeah, I mean, student achievement is one thing, right? But I would say that 
and and maybe 2021 is a fitting year to talk about that. I would say that even more important than achievement is students' ability to continue to grow. And and I'm referring in particular here to self-efficacy. Uh, and I'm saying 2021 is, is, is a good year to talk about it because Al Bandura, who came up with the, with the concept of self-efficacy, passed away uh, this year. So self-efficacy is a person's belief in being able to succeed in a certain domain, right? So if you ask me about my belief in myself and being able to succeed in physics, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty good about it. And, and, and that's, why I, <laughs> well, that's why I chose to be a physicist. But if you were to ask me, you know, how good are you as an opera singer or as a singer in general, I would probably say, I suck. <laughs> and so I have a low self-efficacy in singing, but I have a high self-efficacy in physics. Why is it important to have a high self-efficacy in something you might want to pursue or something that is related to something you might want to pursue? Because depending on your your self-efficacy, or actually your self-efficacy, in a sense, determines your persistence, if you want, in, in the field. If, if I have low self-efficacy in something, let's say singing, and you ask me to sing for you on your podcast, first of all, I will not happily accept that invitation, but, but suppose you did. I, I'm not trying to give you an idea. Don't do it. <laughs> You know, if I did it, I would probably make a complete fool of myself. And, and after the podcast, I would just shrug my shoulders. And why did he ask me that? I'm just not good at singing. Right. But if you were to ask me to solve a physics problem and, and, and for some reason I goof, I would have a very different attitude. I would say, I just didn't have a good day or I didn't sleep that well that night. or I, I, I didn't try hard enough. Right. So, so in one case, you walk away from the subject in the other case, singing, right? I'm just going to avoid singing. In the other case, you know, you dig in deeper. I just got to try harder. So what people have found is that in, in many traditionally taught courses, science courses in particular, students' self-efficacy goes down. If you measure it at the beginning of the course and the end of the course, it goes down. When I implemented peer instruction, which was the first time that I, that I used self-efficacy, I found that self-efficacy stayed flat. I was kind of disappointed about that initially, but at least I prevented it from dropping. With this new combined approach, perusal, peer instruction, and, and what we just discussed about problems and project-based learning, it actually goes up dramatically. So in other words, students who are not per se interested in physics feel better about their abilities to do physics at the end of the classroom. I think that's even more valuable than just looking at a performance metric. Because this means that if a student later discovers he or she needs to know some physics, then there's a really good chance that the person will actually try and do it. Fantastic. That's a, that's a great point, Eric. I think, and I think one that we often neglect. And actually, two for listeners, two episodes ago, we talked to Naomi Fisher, and she talked about that. You know, she, she had a different approach to... Uh, fostering it in students than you, you have. But I think, like, if we 
turns students off learning, that's the greatest failure of education. And so that's the opposite way of saying if we can increase their self-efficacy, um, then that's the most important thing that we can do because that enables them to have kind of compound growth of their uh, of their learning over time. So that's fantastic. And in addition to that, there are many, many research studies that support the increases in student achievement from these three approaches as well. So I, I thought it's important to mention that. Three book recommendations, Eric. Book recommendations? Well, I mean, I, I think, I don't know, Steve, sorry. No, they're definitely not education-related. Let me think. Well, one, you know, a book that I have read more than once, and I don't know why it resonates so strongly with me, is Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. I think it captures so many aspects of uh, relationships and life. And uh, I, I went through a whole period of my life that I, I read one uh, Kundera book after uh, after the other, but the unbearable legends of being, which has actually been turned into a movie, is is just you know stands out in my mind right now. But let's see, let's let's see if we can move a little bit more towards uh, education. I mean, a book that I think everybody should read is Free Will by Sam Harris, which is an amazing book. You know, it sort of comes back to a question that I think people have, uh, philosophers and physicists have pondered since the beginning of humanity, namely, do we have a free will or is everything we do predetermined? And he sort of puts you at ease with the idea that we may not actually be having a real free will. So that's uh, it's a shocking book and, and one I think that everybody should uh, read. And then I think, let's see, this 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 moves more towards towards education and the, the topics that we've discussed. And I have trouble choosing the third book between two books that are closely related. One is the Think Fast and Slow, I think, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And a book that I think is very closely related, that which is Blink by, by Malcolm uh, Gladwell, which also talks about, you know, these, these decisions that we take instantly, right? I mean, because they give an insight about how, how the brain the brain works. And I think in education, we have, we have a lot to learn from, from neuroscience and cognitive science. There's still too big a gap between the classroom practice, cognitive sciences, and neurosciences. And I found those last two books very interesting because they sort of tell you something about how our brains really work. Yeah. What are you currently excited about, Eric? So I'm very excited about the way I'm teaching now. You see, during the pandemic, I moved my course online, and I found that I could actually improve my teaching online. There's just no question about that I did my best teaching ever, because the pandemic jolted my preconceptions about teaching. Why does all of teaching have to be synchronous? Well, because of classrooms. If we don't have a classroom, it no longer has to be synchronous. Why does most of instruction have to be instructor-based? Well, if we don't have classroom, we can make it more self-based. So this year, I'm forced back onto the in, onto campus, and and I was thinking, you know, how can I take advantage of all the advances I made last year in my approach to teaching, but still offer students an in-class experience? I agonized about that the whole summer, and I came up with a multimodal approach. Not hybrid, but multimodal. Essentially, students can decide whether they want to be in person or online. And in both cases, the experience is exactly the same. If they're in person, they sit around the table, work on a problem. They use Zoom to share their screen with each other, but they turn off the video and the audio. 
So everybody, you know, I can I can say, hey, Oliver, let me let me show my my uh, how I solve this problem, and you see it on the screen. And we sit around the table. We still see each other. We sit physically in the same space. And then, you know, when we're done, one of us, maybe Eric, the instructor, comes over and we present it to to Eric. Other teams meet online and do exactly the same thing, but they turn on their video and their audio. And when one of those teams calls me in, I go just outside the classroom to a quiet spot and I join the team on Zoom. And if the, the team on Zoom wants to meet at a time that is outside the time that the physical classroom is available, no sweat. As long as we all five can make it, we can do it at night or some other time. It's not more work. It's just that I adapt the schedule to my students or while they also have to adapt somewhat to my schedule. But I interact way more with students than I ever did before, or way more closely, I should say. I'm really excited by it. I feel a sense of excitement for my student. I saw something really interesting. At the beginning of the semester, 80% said they wanted to strongly, they strongly preferred an in-person experience. And only 20% said, you know, or 10% said, you know, we strongly prefer online. And 10% said, you know, either either one is fine. Today, because I taught today, 60% of the students were online. Now, all of the project-based stuff, that's in person, of course, you cannot build together on Zoom very easily. So, so I'm excited because I think we're we're at a turning point for education. Things are changing at a pace that we haven't seen in a thousand years of uh, you know formal education. Eric Mizzle, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful to hear about those three components of instruction: peer instruction, perusal. And the, and the assignments that you run, as well as a bit of a taster of some of the other exciting things you do right at the end there. For me, this was a really exciting podcast because you've actually been part of my education journey for, for a long time now, for, for getting close to, close to a decade because my first year physics lecturer at university had your book on his shelf and he would use your concept tests in a peer instruction manner. Uh, in my first year physics classes. And that really, you know, hooked me even further into physics in my first year. Um, and I, I subsequently got a copy of your book and I've used it in my own classes. I've used the force concept inventory in my own classes. Unfortunately, they had similar results to your initial classes. So I've still got a bit of work to do there, but, but really it's been such a, such an honor and privilege to chat with you today because for that reason and because your work just in generally is is so fantastic and also i think what you and what your career shows is what can be achieved when a teacher or an instructor or a lecturer really pays attention to what's going on for their students because every innovation that you've you've created it's just been constantly asking the question how are my students reacting to this? How is this helping their achievement and their self-efficacy? And what can I do to improve? And it just shows that over a period of 30 or 40 years of teaching, if instead of just doing the same thing every year, which a lot of people do, if you say, how can I make this better? The incremental improvements lead to this huge you know, really well-developed set of products and instructional approaches that are having a huge impact for your students where you are, but also around the world. And this, con- this podcast just in itself is going to go to, you know, tens of thousands of people, but also you- your reach is much greater than that already. So thank you. Thank you for demonstrating what can be achieved when that kind of a focus is brought to teaching. Uh, and thank you for all the, the concrete uh, design and instructional approaches you've brought to me and, and to the world more broadly. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ECCR podcast with Eric Mazur. 
If you're keen on a summary of this episode of the Each Villa podcast and 100% off or 50% off the forthcoming Each Villa five-year book, please remember to jump onto patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other EEEE episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week, a wonderful new year, and until next time, keep learning.